Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And I'm stoked to have today's guest here. You've probably read Dr. McNinja, but he's also written the great hard-boiled Wario detective webcomic, Never <laughs> Enough, The Wario Diaries. He's written for the Adventure Time comic. He's one of the creators of Gwenpool. He's also part of Rude Tales of Magic and Oh, These Stars of Space, plus much more. Please welcome Christopher Hastings. Hello, hello, and thank you, George. Thank you to my resume. Uh, so happy for all of us to be here. Absolutely. I'm stoked to have you here, and I'm a, a big fan of all of your work. You know, the comics, the podcast, it's all great. So this is, uh, is going to be a lot of fun. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror in general? Okay. So first up, you know, grew up convinced my house was haunted. <laughs> Good start. <laughs> my my parents really tried to make an argument that it wasn't because they literally built it. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, no, only old houses are haunted. Nobody died here. And I was like, it doesn't matter. I'm seeing stuff, you know. Uh, so a very, very imaginative child. And I was uh, I think I've always been drawn to horror. Like, I loved the Goosebumps books. You know, that was the big one as a kid. I read them as they came out every month, like, went to Walden Books for the new one every time. And, you know, watched Are You Afraid of the Dark? So what? Everyone has. Very popular program. <laughs> but, like, as, I think at getting older, the big thing for me for getting into the scary movies was that, you know, I grew up in the middle of the woods. Again, you know, parents built the house there but and not a great trick-or-treating scene when you're the only house in the middle of the woods so eventually i I got to be friends with somebody who lived in a wealthy slash good neighborhood to trick-or-treat in gotta get those king size bars yeah man well you know honestly only the one house would do it but like just like a nice neighborhood to collect a lot of candy sure sure like a a neighborhood neighborhood where the houses are next to each other which is (laughs) what you want when you're trick-or-treating right that's the classic setup (laughs) oh baby we've built a whole culture on it so I would go to my friend's neighborhood on Halloween to trick or treat. And then when we were done, we would go to like his family's basement den and we would enjoy our candy and watch whatever movies were on TBS or TNT that night, wherever it turns, as it turns out, Joe Bob Briggs was hosting his programming that night. And like, yeah, I remember it was like one Halloween, saw the entire Poltergeist trilogy for the first time absolutely terrified me uh even the third one (laughs) because a child does not understand why it maybe doesn't work so well narratively the child knows that mirrors will kill you right um so yeah that was a big moment and then later on i went to work at a boy scout camp where we were completely unsupervised as teenagers ruling over children but like when the kids were gone you know we were just still there and we had like a campsite with electricity so like Everybody had TVs and VCRs in their tents with, like, electric hookups. And I just got to have, like, a complete cultural education when I was, like, you know, 13, 14 years old going to this camp. Because they were like, hey, Chris, have you ever seen Evil Dead? Ever seen uh, Little Shop of Horrors? Or didn't know who John Waters was before I was 13 and then uh, got to see <laughs> Pink Flamingos. Wow. You know, but also, like, Meet the Deedles and, like, all these, like, really great counterculture stuff that you want to see when you're 13 years old it was exact right time yeah john waters i mean he's he's singing odes to the 13 year old boy's mind (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm like, so you're telling me that you can you can do this butthole game with <laughs> well, everybody's heard about the bird. <laughs> Just like, well, that's not allowed. And it wasn't. He got in trouble for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. But hey, that's what makes it counterculture, baby. Yeah, for sure. So like, yeah, I definitely had these these moments of of horror coming in at like crucial times. And now as a, as a comic book writer who, like I said, you, you ticked off my, my LinkedIn profile there, but it's mostly comedy. And I've lately been getting into more horror. Um, specifically, I've been adapting, so, you know, the, the Five Nights at Freddy's games are, you know, these games where you play a security guard in what is essentially a haunted Chuck E. Cheese. Right. Where the animatronic animals try to kill you every night. And uh, this video game has launched a massive <laughs> franchise of YA horror books um, that I have been adapting into graphic novels. Wow. And it's been such a cool experience to just get to write something for scares instead of laughs. You know, sure. we're still trying to elicit a physical response. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I've just been having a great time writing horror for the first time. That's really cool. That's where I am right now. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, especially Five Nights at Freddy's is is not a series that I have played a ton of myself, but my understanding is that there is just like so much interesting like lore and story like baked into them that it gives you a really interesting world to play with, I'm sure. There is so much lore. There is so <laughs> much lore. Oh my God. I can't keep up with it. I mean, I am... Yeah, I'll be like, so like, you know, I, I, I read I read the books and then, you know, to translate... Um, a prose novel into a comic book, the, the lengths just aren't the same. You're going to have to cut some stuff. And so, oh, you know, I'll go through this. I'm like, who is this? This neighbor character doesn't really seem to be affecting the plot. You know, they got to go. <laughs> and then I'll be like, well, before I, before I cut this, let me go look at the wiki. Okay, if you beat the game five times, you'll see an appearance from Golden Freddy. And if you click the left mouse button, it'll give you an URL. And then you'll get to go look at this hash code that'll then say the neighbor. <laughs> or like That's the guy. Completely made up example. But like, <laughs> just I have to like, every there are so many references that like are just these sly little Easter eggs that just go right by that like, I that again, I am not a skilled enough gamer in the five i can't i have not gotten to the fifth night on the first five nights at freddy i th th those games ruin me i'm an old man they're tough they're tough but yeah you you, you gotta watch out for all those references because they all mean <laughs> something i'm curious if you have a favorite subgenre within horror i mean i gotta have ghosts nice yeah i i am not terribly interested in slashers you know if someone's killing the babysitters i say that's fine let the police handle it <laughs> How, but if there's a <laughs> cult that is really that's actually connected to an evil god or something, or if there's a haunty house, mm. uh, yeah, I, I need there to be an element of the supernatural in there. That's that's what really gets me going. And like, especially if you really ride the line of not quite explaining the full picture, you know, <laughs> like for example, like us, you know, I loved it until they explained the deal with why everybody has these doppelgangers underground. I thought like just explained it a little too much. I was like, ah, oh, if you had just kept it a little more mysterious, let me fill it in in my head. That would have been perfect. Yeah. Hey, imagination is a powerful thing. And I mean, that fits right into today's movie. Plenty of ghosts. Oh, they abound <laughs> in mm -hmm. today's movie. Uh, we are talking about, of course, House from 1977, directed by Nobuhiko Obayashi, our second Ghost Cat movie, if you can believe it. Oh, what was the other one? Uh, we talked about Kuroneko at one point. I uh, don't know it. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a Japanese 60s movie. Very fun. 
Oh, okay. Um, but similarly ties into that sort of uh, vengeful cat spirit that possesses a woman. <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah, so it's a lot of fun. I'm curious if you watch a lot of Japanese movies or if this is something that just kind of transcends that threshold for you. Not a ton, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, I like a couple of the Murakami adaptations. I, I certainly watch a journeyman's share of anime. Paprika is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, it's great. Uh, yeah. But no, I don't I don't really seek out any Japanese stuff in particular. I just think that this movie is an incredible triumph of imagination over everything that is interested in making a profitable movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely the case. And as we sort of talk through the context, it's kind of fascinating how he set out to be like, I'm not going to do a typical Japanese movie. Like, I'm yeah. explicitly pushing against that. And it works to create such a, like, vivid and vibrant pop art work that is just fantastic. It is a masterpiece. And to come out so fully formed out of the gate, you know, he, he had been making these art films and everything and working in commercial advertising. But for his first feature to, to come out swinging like this is really something incredible. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm not sure if this is being picked up. My my dog is is uh, eating his food, and he likes to slam his bowl around <laughs> as he does it violently. Can't get the wolf out of the dog. Uh, no, even though this dog is only six pounds. Uh, so yeah. So you, you know, you mentioned the 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 commercial stuff. I love that. Like the the first act of this movie is just shot like a commercial. This looks like they're trying to sell like shampoo or Mentos. <laughs> Just like it, what a great way to like really take the extremes of the horror movie where it's like, all right, the first step in a horror is you got to introduce the people that it happens to and by golly, you got to make them likable. It just opens with this conversation where they're talking to their teacher who's about to go to an arranged marriage. And they're like, and she's like, oh, I bet you're marrying for love. <laughs> no, have a good summer. <laughs> but we'll find out that that was thematic. Wow. Uh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Obayashi, he started out making these 8mm and 16mm films independently, and he was writing on the side. And when he went to university in Tokyo, he did build a bit of a reputation as a film artist by screening these on canvas in galleries. And these early works are mostly, quote, monuments to youth, which I think does translate into being part of this as well. There's a lot of that sort of capturing youth in its innocence, I think before war and and whatnot starts to affect them it, that uh definitely persists into this movie yeah and gosh you know you, you know you mentioned the war and like that that is uh uh world war ii and um that one time uh the united states used a couple of the most horrific weapons conceivable to man against the japanese directly affected obayashi and that i believe he lost his like all of his friends right why in a nuclear bombing so there's a point in this movie where like so this is a film where uh several schoolgirls uh decide to go on their summer vacation to one of their friends aunt's house who she has not seen since she was a little girl out in the countryside like she just invites herself and all of her buddies to this woman's house and on the bus ride there she's explaining what the deal is with her aunt and it's it's a very fun thing where it, it looks like they're reading like a magazine or they're seeing like an old newsreel or an old silent movie it flips back and forth between these different mediums of what happened to the aunt which is that her fiance had to go fight in world war ii got killed and you know this had a 
tremendous supernatural effect on the ant at the end. But what's really funny is that like it really contrasts these generations as being like the generation that knew this horrific war and the generation that didn't know anything about it. And it's like completely innocent. And there's even this line where like when they see the nuclear bomb go off and you see the mushroom cloud, they're like, oh, it looks like popcorn. Right. Like as the kids are narrating the footage. And I think it's like such a great set up for them being plunged again into this cross points, which is the house uh, that will eat them. Right. I totally agree. I think even in that particular scene, which I do love, there's something really interesting about the fact that they are commenting on it. There's a remove there. Mm -hmm. They don't feel connected to it in the same way that someone who lived through it would. Yeah. He took up advertising work to fund these avant-garde projects And he felt that it was a different time for advertising, especially in Japan. I read an interview in Rue Morgue magazine, and he said, Commercials were basically one to three minute shorts that offered filmmakers a lot of freedom, paid a lot of money, and were generally more fun. Quote, (laughs) I had a blast making commercials with people like David Niven, Kirk Douglas, Sophia Loren, Ringo Starr, even Charles Bronson. I was going to say, he did that that great Bronson ad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mandem deodorant. Pretty, uh, Pretty spectacular. Yeah, yeah. I actually majored in advertising in college, and you meet so many copywriters who are like, oh, I'm the next F. Scott Fitzgerald. I'm only doing this until my writing career takes off. And this is like the updated version for film dorks instead of aspiring (laughs) authors. Gosh, I mean, like, yeah, like, have you seen like David Cronenberg's commercials? No. Oh, my God. Yeah, look him up. David Cronenberg did like this amazing Nike commercial. (laughs) That's like like a, a Nike's shoe is getting fed into an egg on an alien planet. Oh like, oh, That's so incredible. cool. There's this other one that I, I forget what the ad is for. Like, I, I, it's an ad for like Snickers or something where it's like paranoid noir story where it's like they're out to get the secret of my Snickers. <laughs> I'm not going to look it up right now because I feel like my misremembering of it only will add to the lore of it, to the listener as they look sure. it up and they say, it wasn't Snickers, it was Dr. Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> The ultimate twist. But yeah, man, Google David Cronenberg's commercials because they are fun. Now, the ad agency Dentsu that he was working with filmed their commercials at Toho Studios. And one of the executives there pulled him aside and was like, hey, hypothetically, (laughs) if we wanted a movie that was kind of like Jaws, what might that look like? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. And and his answer was, yeah, I can make you a movie that has a one word, one syllable title. Sure, sure. Similarities in there. (laughs) He even literally thought they were kidding because Toho is notoriously insular. So he was like, I'll just toss out one of my daughter Shigumi's ideas. And it started with her having just taken a bath and she was like combing her hair in front of the mirror. And she goes, wouldn't it be funny if my reflection came out to eat me? Which I don't know if funny is the first word I'd reach for. <laughs> funny, really? Wow. Yeah, I do. I mean, the, yeah. So we're getting into like what is so fun about the movie, which is that it had that you know he said, "I don't care about adult logic. I want this to be like a, a child is telling you this this story. Like right. it's kid logic, or I would also say watching it dream logic. It's just a step above dream logic." Which it's fine. You just you just gotta enjoy it. This is one of those movies that I get very annoyed by the reaction, which is, "What drugs was he taking, and can <laughs> I have some?" And it's like his the drugs were that he was an artist with freedom. 
Yeah. And he was trying interesting things. And I'll tell you what, you could not figure out to dump chroma key paint on your actresses if you were high on shrooms. That takes a mind at the top of its craft. Sharp. Sharp. (laughs) He was like, yeah, this is a fun idea. I'm going to go for this. This concept of seven girls getting eaten by a house. And the executive (laughs) was like, damn, that sounds rad. And he was right. And he was. Yeah, as I understand it, several directors uh, that, like, he was brought on just to, like, kind of co-write. And then uh, because there were certain laws about, like, or or norms or something that, like, he, it, it would be against some sort of rule for him to be the director. Toho had a union of directors that they utilized. Right. But none of them wanted to make it because uh, they all saw it was insane and they said that this would ruin them. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny that... The studio at this point was just like, we don't even care. The Japanese movie industry was in trouble because of uh, the proliferation of pink cinema, as discussed in our Cure episode, plus the crossover of Hollywood hits like Star Wars and the previously mentioned Jaws. And so even though these directors were like, I'm not willing to step out of this comfort zone, Toho was like, we're tired of losing money on comprehensible films. So (laughs) (laughs) if we're going to lose money, it might as well be for something that's fucking out there like wow that's great george it's clear you've done your research i've done probably a third of it but something that i thought was very interesting and i'm curious if you uh, sorry to put you on the spot here if you could shine some light on i read that this movie was in limbo for a while you know the script was approved but nobody wanted to make it until they made a successful radio drama version of it yes so He was really kind of forward thinking because it was at this time that movie novelizations were really starting to hit their peak. Obviously, once VCRs were invented, that was like the beginning of the end for movie novelizations. But he had seen these coming around and he said, not only do I want to turn this into a huge multimedia thing, we're going to do a novel, a manga, a merchandise line, a record (sighs) with the soundtrack. This is I mean, this sounds like nothing today. But in 1977, it's the pre shadows of the empire. Right. Exactly. When you make everything but the movie. Right. And yeah, so he, he put together this radio play version that was uh, like basically a, a sensation. People were like, did you hear about this crazy house? <laughs> did you hear about hose <laughs> on the radio? <laughs> I, I do love that while they were working all this stuff out and it was kind of in limbo, he was still tinkering with the script. Like he said, he always discusses important things with children. So he went back to his daughter. God bless him. Yeah. There was an interesting quote. This is part of his interview with Criterion. Adults can only think about things they understand. So everything stays on that boring human level. Ooh, yeah. But children can come up with things that can't be explained. And he goes on to say that the adult version of this is going from a shark movie to a bear movie. Kind of laying out the like Jaws Mm. comparison there. Mm Mm-hmm. But children like the strange and mysterious, and that's sort of where this movie emerged from. Oh, that's great, yeah. Like, oh, a shark could eat people. Uh, A house could eat people. Right. (laughs) My aunt could eat people! (laughs) (laughs) Shigumi did contribute a lot, and she got an original story credit, which is nice. Mm Mm-hmm. And the watermelon in the well is a big moment from her that I love. Apparently, this was a thing that happened at her grandpa's because there was no fridge and she got scared when she thought it was ahead. Oh, that's great. That's really good. Yeah. The amount of attention that was paid to that moment, like that gets a lot of beats, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, really important. And like it, it, it works that like the watermelon to head as a symbol from like crossing into the mundane into the strange like 
in a way that is like you can understand visually that like we really see Mac, the character oh, who eats too much, apparently, <laughs> just like another perfectly fit Japanese woman <laughs> who they all decided to call fat. Oh, God, she wants to eat that watermelon. And she's lugging this thing around. Like, they really do give it the time of her lugging this thing around. You see the weight of it. That The moment it comes out of a well that's not the watermelon, it's her head, that crossover is completely justified. Yeah, totally. It totally works. Toho finally reached an agreement with their union to let him come in and, and direct this movie himself after that play was so popular. And I love this quote from Obayashi where he said, Toho asked me not to make a Japanese movie, but a movie that was a commercial for the movies. Oh. House is, in this way, my love letter to the cinema. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's a love letter to uh, matte painting backgrounds. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, he really did do his own thing. You know, he creates the style that combines both the pop art and avant-garde sensibilities with this unreality that leans into the cinematic language. You know, matte paintings and every damn visual trick in the book. Frantic editing, hand-drawn animation, stop motion, chroma keys, a palette that looks like the result of a too successful Halloween trick-or-treat expedition. Piano that eats a kid. Ah, Mario, eat your heart out. Yeah, one thing I think is so fun about this, and, like, if there's a reason behind it, I'm not even sure if I want to know, because I think it, like, speaks to the absurd for absurdity's sake, is that, like, they keep doing this thing where, like, the actors are, like, shot in a new scene against a background that clearly looks fake, and then they pull out to reveal that they are standing in front of a giant painting... (laughs) Yeah, oh, <laughs> there's fantastic. a real background behind them, <laughs> or just a slightly more realistic matte yes. painting background, <laughs> and they keep doing it. And I'm like, why are you doing this? I mean, I love it. Great yeah. joke, great gag. I don't know if it fits your story for any reason, but what do I know? I'm a man in the United States watching this 50 years after the fact. It is. I mean, it is so funny. The first time you do it, you're like. Oh, it pulls back to reveal this, like, grimy train station tunnel. Ooh, what could it mean? But then the second time, like you said, it's just, like, the mountain range that, like, it was depicting is just there larger behind them. Yeah. I don't know. I don't I don't know if it means anything, but uh, it was definitely very funny. Same thing when their teacher slash soccer coach or whoever who is supposed to be rescued, who, who may or may not rescue them, then they uh, keep Chris cutting Charlotte. to his problems along the way to the countryside. <laughs> In the end, he just gets turned into a pile of bananas and, like, very funny. (laughs) But it's one of those ones where I'm like, this movie does reference a lot of, like, classic Japanese, like, folklore and monsters and ghost stories and all that stuff that, like, it just makes sense. Like, oh, yeah, no, this ghost story has this reference to the, you know, to to a kappa, you know, a a turtle monster who wants to steal your soul through your butthole. (laughs) But, like, that one, I'm like, I don't think I know the... The legend of the guy who turned into bananas for no reason. Oh, you don't know that one? Oh, (laughs) it's the best. No, I think I read something about it relating to, like, the sexualization, and it's kind of like what that fantasy was doing to him, and it's sort of like a phallic metaphor that he just turns into a pile of bananas when she reduces him to Prince Charming, but who knows? Who knows? Okay. Sure, I'll buy it. (laughs) You could tell me anything, because there is absolutely nothing there. I would read into anything. (laughs) other than like he rejected the watermelon and said he preferred bananas and the watermelon salesman turned into a skeleton and he into bananas why not it was so funny i was wondering i was thinking there i was like i wonder if banana was like their first choice as the opposite or if they were like 
what's the opposite of a melon? A pile of sand, maybe. <laughs> like, <laughs> like just listing things they think you could turn into. And I said, no, let's just turn it into fruit. Yeah. One other quote that I really enjoyed from the Criterion Supplements, uh, the director said, if Kurosawa or Ozu were to see it, what kind of direction would offend the most? That's how I'll do it. Oh, very nice. I think a movie that I might compare this to is Speed Racer, actually. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I really love what that movie is doing in terms of being a proof of concept for CGI. You know, mm-hmm. it's like... Mm-hmm. This is a thing that is based in reality, car racing, but then we're able to take it to another level by leaning into that unreality the same way that house does. And it sort of is like you get to really see what they're going for, even if maybe the execution doesn't work every single time. You're like, I understand that this is like, yeah, I'm leaning into my chosen medium, utilizing it at sort of its most technologically advanced and and. I just think that it's kind of special that way. And they get away with it by saying it's for kids. Yeah. Both of them. <laughs> oh, no, my kid wrote this movie. <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that's like like some of the special effects I think is like so great that like he was just like, I'm going to I'm going to try this and we'll see if it works when I'm in post. We don't know. And like that did lead to some like some really weird looking like you can see the artifacts on like the blue screen stuff. But, like, yeah, man, like, figure out a way to make this vampire head fly and bite a butt. Like, if that's what it takes. (laughs) That every movie should have that. Yeah. (laughs) My only complaint is that, like, the vampire butt bite didn't, like, like, set off, you know, the infection or whatever. But, again, that's adult logic. That's on me. There wasn't enough time. Who knows? If they had stayed alive for another couple hours, maybe she would have started to turn. Yeah. (laughs) Well, this gets to something I think is interesting is, you know, the, the, the horror concept of the final girl or the, the last, you know, the last one standing mm-hmm. and watching this movie for the, for the first time, I really thought that it was going to be, well, we haven't talked about the girls' names. Right. So the girls all have a nickname based off of a singular cartoonish trait that is both their strength and their downfall in the movie. Mm-hmm. And so it is uh, gorgeous who is sort of the closest we have to a main character. It's her aunt's house. And Gorgeous is pretty, but like also Gorgeous is like the, the English version. I think like if you were to like follow a more strict translation, it's more that like the name would be something like is very attentive to her fashion, you know, or something like that. Like, like make sure she's constantly looking in the mirror and touching up her makeup and stuff. Yeah. Self-focused in in a way. Yeah. Cause like, let's be honest, like they're all equally pretty. They're all (laughs) actresses in a movie (laughs) right so yeah and then there's fantasy who sort of uh, has a big imagination and of course is the first one to see everything that is fucking crazy about the house and nobody believes her because oh fantasy classic fantasy you're just yeah you too imaginative and then there's melody melody who likes to play (laughs) music (laughs) and prof or professor or, you know, if we're going by Commedia dell'arte, uh, Il Dottore. Uh, uh, you know, she's the nerd, the intellectual. Right, right. Let's see. And there's, uh, who, let's see, who am I missing? Sweet? Is Sweet? Sweet's oh. one of them. Yep. Sweet, who is very, like, naive and, and sort of innocent. And um, I guess is tempted by a naked doll, her who pulls her into a grandfather clock. Right. 
you know, classic sweet stuff. Like they do, like they do. Yeah. Mac, who we mentioned. Mac, yeah, Mac, who, short for stomach, because, gosh, she loves to eat. And then my favorite, Kung Fu. How could she not be? Yeah, Kung Fu, who I think really does play a crucial role in the movie as the girl who is not useless, who is happy to beat the shit out of every ghost she finds. She is so powerful, and they I think they kind of acknowledge this early on in the movie, that like whenever she springs into action, it is no longer a horror movie, it's an action movie. And right. she's there to kick ass. And like oh, yeah. she beats down doors, she kicks ghosts in the face... And ultimately, I believe, defeats the ant, even though the house's power takes over Gorgeous in the end. Which is what I was initially about to say, which is that it really does seem like Gorgeous is going to be the last girl standing to win against the house. But in fact, while she may survive, none of them win. (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. Kung Fu is great. I mean, she's fighting the walls and stuff. (laughs) Furniture Mm -hmm. is flying around and she's a, a whirlwind of fists and feet. Just amazing. Uh, yeah, it's great. It's so cool when they like when they first go in the house, you know, and the aunt is like, "Oh, I'm 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 so sick and old, and thank you girls for coming to see me. What a pleasure. You'll have to help me." And then like the chandelier like like starts diving on them and like just immediately tries to kill them like dropping crystal knives and kung right. fu is just like, "Nope." And just immediately like kicks out like the entire thing and the problem is solved hell yeah great intro no no problems with kung fu around i don't think she should have died <laughs> she should have got away she should have gotten away with it, the whole thing <laughs> so you know he is hitting these classic ghost story themes of the horrors of the past sort of echoing into future generations um i found one more quote that i wanted to read from him where he says I've experienced war, and from a young age, I had the mindset, like many others, of being prepared to die at any time. I was probably able to purely internalize this mindset even better since I was a child. And so I think you do see, just like, beyond the the childlike charm of this, there is sort of this uh, undercurrent of darkness and and despair there. Yeah, I mean, gosh, what a way to live. Yeah. Oh, you think your dad getting remarried is bad? School is tough? Try having your whole damn city nuked. Yeah, yeah, that's you're spot on. Yeah, like, oh, your dad is getting remarried. Yeah. Fucking my yeah, you're absolutely right. When you're talking about the undercurrent, one one of the things I really love is that just like those things that kind of just go unacknowledged is that like sometimes like sound effects in the movies, like a door opening or something like that, is like someone screaming. Like, the ghosts, because, you know, it is... The house has eaten many unmarried women before the this pack of girls show up. Right. And, uh, and like, occasionally you just hear them. And the girls don't hear them. But, like, like literally, like, a door open, Like, it's a sound effect being replaced. Like, you open a door and it goes, no! <laughs> like, and they don't acknowledge it. They don't hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, most evident at the point whenever uh, Gorgeous already possessed... Uh, it's like, I'm going to call the police. And when she picks up the phone, like you could, all you can hear is people crying for help. And she's like, Oh, no connection. (laughs) Yeah. It is really cool sort of subtle thing. I mean, for them to not like interact with it and sort of have that removed for us as well, the same way that they did. I think it, it is really cool. Another good quote from my man about the complicated tone. Rue Morg basically asked him, who is this movie for? Mm. (laughs) And And he said, 
Movies can make children extend themselves beyond their capabilities, but can also make adults feel like children again. Wow. I believe movies make you think about humanity and the world in these various ways, so I never think of a target audience when I make my films. Target audiences are also a commercial imperative, so I'm not interested in them at all. Oh, beautiful. Love it. Love it. I wish I had seen this movie as a kid. I really, really do. Mm -hmm. I think it would have made me a better person. (laughs) Just like yeah, I would have uh, would have loved this as a kid. I'm you know love it as an adult, but like yeah, to connect to that kid logic of the whole thing, I think would have been so great. Also, like you know, it would have been one of those movies where like as an adult, you know, I don't know if we've necessarily touched on this. The movie is hilarious and is playing things for laughs. That is yeah. part of it. Like the the house and the ant, the uh, the monsters of the movie have a gleefulness in the way that they consume their victims that the filmmaker sides with. Um, Everyone is happy when someone dies Mm -hmm. and it's very funny. Even the, the slapstick of like injuries when the guy, when Mr. Togo falls down the stairs on, on his ass. So funny. (laughs) Yeah. They speed up the footage. He's got a bucket on his butt. They're playing the drums on it. Oh. Yeah, I mean the best the, the 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 two two of the funniest moments for me is like when the aunt is like really happy that she's feeding on the kids and she's like dancing and like drinking martinis of blood and just like snacking on an arm and like goofing around in the background. The girls don't even see her. Super fun. Yep. Um, but my favorite is whenever Melody who has become entranced by the house's piano. She keeps playing this fucking piano. And um, she doesn't, it's like, it's completely taken her out of her facilities. And then eventually the piano decides to eat her. And it starts with her fingers. And like, it's just like, you know, it's like the the lid closes over the keyboard and gets her fingers. And then she looks up at her hands and she just laughs. She's like, my fingers are gone. (laughs) And then she goes back to playing and then it takes her hands. And then when like it's down to her wrist, she kind of realizes what's going on. And at that point, the piano eats her entirely. And as the piano is chowing down, there's, you know, a very strange psychedelic, you know, moment that is again, this sort of anti-realistic sort of childish uh, CGI thing happening where, you know, the body is sort of half there, half not. You can't tell what's real, what isn't. And you see her, like, legs and butt sticking out of the piano as it's, like, munching on her. And then in the foreground, her head floats down and looks over and she's like, oh, that's very naughty. (laughs) And she just, like, laughs at it. And it's like, God, that's great. It's like, it's such a perfect illustration of how you know a haunting will drive you insane and like kind of put you on its side very much you know like as we see in like uh, sort of like a shining kind of thing when you know jack is like fully on you know the side of the hotel like yeah. we see that here but it's played way funnier i also think that there is an interesting dynamic there with the acting in this partially because obayashi casted mostly like commercial actors like these are like uh models for Japanese commercials that he was hiring, not, like, movie stars. Great. And so it does create this kind of, like, weird delivery from a lot of them at times that I think does work really well to just kind of keep you a little bit off balance where you're like, oh, this is an interesting way to sort of communicate this. I think that they do a really great job with the, with the script, especially because it's not really the kind of thing where 
you can be like, oh, okay, I, I see, like, I'm going to dig into this character development here. <laughs> like, it's not really <laughs> that kind of performance. And so they, they really do a great job with it. Yeah. It's the greatest horror movie ever made. Sure. <laughs> there we go. It was originally released in Japan in 1977 as the behalf of a double bill with Pure Hearts in Mud, a teen idol romance to some cult success among the youth, despite negative critical reception. But they just don't get it, man. Those oh, boy. <laughs> Gosh, that's funny. That's so funny it was released as a double feature. I think I have only seen one double feature my entire life. And it was because my parents took me and my brother to a drive-in, thinking that the drive-ins were dying out. And this was in the 90s, so they were right and wrong at the same time. <laughs> and it was the double feature was Angels in the Outfield and The Mask. Wow. I mean, great way to see The Mask. And, yeah, you know, Angels in the Outfield, you know, good for you. I'm sure you all made a sure. lot of money. <laughs> I bet they did. It was a uh, the mask was a smash yeah. hit. So, Obayashi was pretty upset about these reviews, though. He said there weren't many, but the ones that were there were so bad that they seemed genuinely malicious to him, saying this isn't even a movie and dismissing it on absolute terms. The, it says at the top, it says House, <laughs> a movie. If there's anything, it's like they didn't even watch. It says at the beginning. It says it at the end. It's a movie. It doesn't claim to be anything else. <laughs> it's also interesting because it was rarely seen by international audiences and it had kind of faded out until Criterion slash Janice restored the film print and began screening it internationally. Wow. And it really is kind of an, an indicator of the great work they're doing because it's kind of come back around to being cool to hate on Criterion as pretentious or cultish. But the archiving work that they do really is important, I think, and, and brings us great movies like this. Yeah, gosh, no, they earn their cred with this goofy shit. If they're going to if they're going to put the work on <laughs> in on this, you know, they can they can do whatever they want to, uh, you know, you know, or whatever. Sure. You got to sell your colors trilogies so that you can work on the goofy. Stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get into the actual plot as as much as we can here. I do love this amazing operatic opening. It does break the fourth wall by introducing itself as a movie. And mm. it is part of his being proud to have made a filmmaker's film. He said, get these electric lights, deep ass voice going. Oh, like you mentioned. <laughs> And the O turns into a lipstick red mouth holding an eyeball with fangs. It's such a perfect introduction to sort of the what you're going to get. Incredible design work. Yeah. Gorgeous is snapped out of a memory of hanging with her mother by the end of school. She's going to a villa with her father for the summer. And I promise you, my description of everything past this point will not capture 120th the wildness on screen. Yeah. But, but basically, there's like an electro synth with some bubbling along as they have a grand old time through dissolves and picture and picture alike. The music in this movie is also incredible. I think it's super so fun. weird. Goblin esque, yeah. like electro. I love it. Gorgeous heads home to find her dad is back early from Italy and it's picture perfect. A beautiful golden pink sunset matte painting. <laughs> he sweeps her up and everything is great. Sergio Leone even thought his music was better than more. So great for yeah, a, a movie about a haunted house that has to introduce a character who is in one eighth of the movie saying to have to be a better film composer than Miracle. <laughs> it's pretty great. Enrico, eat your heart out, brother. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is also playing with fables a lot, you know, yeah. part of that childlike direction. Mm -hmm. And so 
here's the woman to fill the spot of wicked stepmother, Ryoko, despite not doing anything wrong the entire movie. God, she tries. <laughs> but that also, like, you know, it, that's important to the ultimate demise of Gorgeous, that, like, nobody wronged her. Mm-hmm. You know, she has to sin to be punished. There you go. There you go. Uh, I love Ryoko's got her, like, personal wind machine <laughs> flowing down. Yes, very fun, especially near the end. I do think it's ironic how the dad brings her up after Gorgeous asks about a souvenir from the trip, where it's like, oh, that's kind of... <laughs> yeah, got you a mom. <laughs> yeah. Got you a stepmom. And I love how you can sort of hear it creeping in through the music first. Yeah. Gorgeous is pissed about this. She reminisces about the times that her and her father had together and how the mother's memory is being disrespected. So she won't go to the villa with them. And she she flees for her room. I really like the way that she says it where she where she's like she's kind of having these like very sweet memories of her mom and she's kind of like laughing. She's almost laughing through her current pain of her mom being replaced by this other woman. Yeah. And she kind of chuckles as she like X's out her dad's face in picture she's like i will bully him (laughs) but like her bullying is just like i'm not gonna go on summer vacation with him and then when you eventually cut to the dad he's like well we could go without her i don't don't know (laughs) not so bad yeah right this is his new fiance i'm sure they're not going to be pissed about having a little time alone yeah the rest of her friends meanwhile are supposed to be going to a training camp chaperoned by mr togo the girls do all think he's cute, except for Kung Fu, who's not impressed. Kung Fu, the voice of the audience. <laughs> Mr. Togo is not cute. Apologies to the actor. I'm sure they styled you that way. The problem is, Mr. Togo arrives, and he's like, my sister is having a baby, which means her inn is closed, which means no camp. And I just laughed so hard to myself, thinking about how much it would suck to be a parent and be, like, expecting your kids to, like, fuck off to a camp for the summer. And then the day of, they're like, just kidding, we're here all summer. Yeah, and and by the way, something like a pregnancy, by that point, you know it's coming. (laughs) You can plan. You know, yeah. But, I mean, it shows, like, maybe what, like, a fucking doofus Togo is. Mm, Great point. Gorgeous does invite them all to her aunt's house as a way to solve all their problems. Plus, connect with her mom. That's another sort of uh, through line yeah. here. Yeah. The ant is stoked, though. Come on in, said the spider to the fly. <laughs> I've waited for your letter for years, <laughs> said me to a delicious hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> and it finally arrived. Thank you, hot dog. <laughs> the cat knocks over a picture of the mom, which is portentous. Hmm. The stepmom says she'll stop by the aunt's house eventually to talk to Gorgeous once she's had some time to cool off. My first trial in becoming her mother, she says through the tears. Boy. Quick musical number. Good morning, everybody. Yeah. Man. Togo, like I said, he falls down the stairs. He lands in a bucket. and he, He's scooting around and he has to go to the hospital now, he says, while he's literally like just like calling them, which is a funny like incongruity. <laughs> yeah, he has to go to the hospital to get the bucket taken off of his butt. But he says he'll meet the girls there, and this is where we get our first look of uh, the joke of them standing and saying goodbye in front of the beautiful landscape, and then yeah. to the side. Great joke. We don't know why it's there. Who can say? <laughs> Gorgeous is late because she was looking for Blanche the cat, but not only was Blanche the one who sent the chaperone to the hospital, she's also in the train seat waiting contentedly for Gorgeous. Yeah. Again, this, this really does speak to the uh, kid logic. Like, the cat obviously brought the letter from the end like hand delivered via cat and then 
you know, the cat hung around. I was like, well, I like this cat. Oh, the cat's gone. Oh, the cat's in the train. Oh, the cat belonged to my aunt this entire time. Wow. Well, time to make dinner. <laughs> yeah. Any old cat can open a door, but only a witch cat can open one. And they're just like, great, witch cat. Done and so, done. I mean, it's so funny that they introduced that, like, like clearly, like, you know, any old gun can be on a table, but only <laughs> this gun can be on a mantle. <laughs> I don't know, the, the cat closing a door only kills one of the seven of them, you know? True, the cat The cat could close a lot more doors is what I'm saying. If that's <laughs> if they're if they're gonna give that prime real estate of of stating things early in the movie, that cat should have been slamming doors left and right. <laughs> Great point. Uh, yeah. It does one. open a lot of doors. It does do that. But as I said, any cat can. So every time it happened, I'm like, oh well pff, don't worry about it, Chris. Any cat can open a door. But if that cat starts closing the door, you're in problems. Never mind the cat having flashing green eyes. It's not closing doors. It's not a problem. I also thought it was weird that they, when I was watching the deleted scenes, there was just a little sliver here where they said, and only a super witch cat can shoot blood from its face. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, that feels important to setting things up, but. Oh, man. You know, this reminds me. I really need to, A, get like a. Uh, uh, I'm gonna say a, a two times life sized uh, portrait of myself painted, and and hung up in the foyer, right. and you know when the family's out, get some contractors to hook up some pipes up to the eyes and some red liquid behind the wall, and then the day that I die, you know, like like have like a, a dead man switch on it, you know what I mean, so that like the day that I don't set it off, just have that portrait gush blood, not just bleed. I want it to shoot, mm-hmm. same yeah. as this cat. Same as his cat. And they'll say he died the way he lived. <laughs> Being a problem for us. <laughs> well, we're going to have to clean this up now. Thanks, Christopher. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I do love this animated train moment, though. And uh, also on the train is a propped up magazine about horror movies that's never talked about or anything. Oh, yeah. So fun, right? Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, well, it's a long day on set and we have to make our own fun. Here it is. (laughs) This is where we get that experimental moment that we were both talking about, where Gorgeous tells them the backstory of her aunt, and it's presented Mm. like they're watching this footage. The kiss, where they kiss so passionately that it starts to burn a kiss of fire. Yeah. That's fun. And she also has a cat that looked just like Blanche back in the 40s. Must have been a different cat. Must have been. (laughs) Must have been. Definitely not vengeful cat spirit could have been a cat that you can kill by stabbing one of its many portraits no way the fiance does get shot down in a plane he's never to return i love the shot of the ant holding the rose and gripping it so tightly that she bleeds oh so great also like in the memory i i think this is really like great for the origin of the ant becoming a spirit when her fiance is shot down it's one of those two men like fighter planes and he's the guy in the back and it's the guy in the front that gets shot and he is just like so stoic he's like this plane isn't gonna crash like he has that face that like he is in in the exact level of denial as his soon-to-be demon ghost fiance has 
right. I promised her I would come back, so there's no way that this will happen. Yeah, so this right. isn't real. Uh, and then, of course, she's clearly distraught at her sister's wedding, which does cut to the nuke. It is both fury and literal at this point. Mm. The bus drops them off as they all make their way to the forest, to grandmother's house, and we finally get a full introduction to our cast as they cross the bridge. Now, it's funny that it's this far in. It's, like, it's, it's Here's funny the names. <laughs> they, they were so close to doing it. They, they were doing it like there's a scene... When they first show up and they think that they're all going to go off to sports camp without Gorgeous and they say each other's names and they do their thing. But like they do like five sixths of it. They're so close (laughs) to finishing the job. And then here they do like full on like zoom ins on every single one of their faces. And like by the way, in case you didn't know, this one is smart and this one loves to eat. And this one will kick you in the face. And this one has a guitar. It is funny. It's like a old sitcom style, like zoom ins on their faces as they like turn and go, "Oh, hey!" <laughs> it's great. I mean, it's 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 what makes the movie so fun. Like, how much more effective is it that we do this goofy stuff in their intro to similarly kill them in such absurd fashions? Like, yeah. it's beautifully balanced in that way. They do stop and meet the melon salesman, though, who is uh, actually the composer of the film's soundtrack, Asei Kobayashi. Yeah, yeah. And th- this is one of those moments where I'm like, so this is like a demonic archetype I'm not familiar with, right? Because he's making like a face that makes me think I sh- should know what that he's means. Doing something, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, and I see like you've got like a big tanuki nearby the watermelon stand. Does that mean right. something? Or am I just, just <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. He, he's definitely got something going on. And he seems to work, if not for the ant with her in some capacity yeah i mean i i really like that like even if he doesn't i like the idea that the ant controls a sort of like magic dead zone and he is the figure on the edge of it yeah you know your classic broken down gas station with the guy going hey i don't think you should go down that path oh sure yeah oh man you know what's funny now i'm realizing like i don't know any example of that except for cabin in the woods (laughs) Texas Chainsaw, the original. I haven't seen it. I don't like slashers. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good one. Tell me a a ghost made him do it, and I'll watch it. It doesn't have to be even true. (laughs) A ghost made him do it. Yeah? Okay. Great. (laughs) I'll I'll check that out. It's pretty wild. Hey, I will say, in the Halloween series, a cult did make him do it. Yeah, that's fair. I watched the first of the the current, like, the new ones, mm-hmm. and I really liked whenever they went to, like, the podcasters went to go bother him in prison, <laughs> and the other prisoners are, like, having their Renfield moment all around him. <laughs> like, I yeah, thought that was fun. It's, I think it is fun. That's all I needed. Just a whiff of the supernatural there. <laughs> it is very fun. Uh, yeah. I don't need to talk about the one after it. That's fine. <laughs> it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm, I haven't watched it. I heard yeah. it was bad, and I don't need to watch it. It's, it's the kind of thing where it's like, I have... Slashers get so bad at points that it's like, this one is bad, but I have seen worse movies in the Halloween franchise, and not an insignificant number of them. Sure. So it kind of lands in the middle of the pack just by accident. <laughs> Man. It's so funny. What a, It's such a miracle. Every single movie, every single TV show... What an incredible alignment of stars and studio money to make every single one of them. And you dare make a bad one? (laughs) Come on, guys. And yet, many have. Most have, have. as it turns out. (laughs) Wild the way that worked. They should stop. 
this is my opinion. I think that they should stop making bad movies and make good ones. That's, I mean, sorry. Sorry for the hot take, but. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, I don't feel comfortable agreeing with you on microphone right now, but. You're doing a big wink, nodding vigorously. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This melon guy is also the voice uh, who says house. Uh, house. Right. So there yeah. you go, another fun. He got to do a lot of the good stuff in this movie. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Sells him a watermelon. Oh, prime roll. <laughs> Blanche does open up the gate for them and jumps into Auntie's lap. Once again, any cat can open a door. I'm like, great. No, that, that's not spooky to me. You've told me that cats can open doors. I don't own a cat. My dog can't do it. I have cats. They can open doors. No problem. To a frustrating degree oh sure <laughs> yeah yeah i i i can as uh, i can see uh in the in the background of your zoom shot here i see several doors that have handles not knobs yeah <laughs> a, a catnip as it were they they love it they love it i do love you know we, we get our first look here at, at the ant but we also get one like unsettling unsettling shot i think is like from the demon's perspective where it's kind of just like detached from everyone and it's kind of like shaky and floating above them. Oh yeah, they do a little bit of an evil dead thing there. Yeah, and I was like, oh, maybe that's supposed to be like the evil spirit of the house. Yeah, maybe. And then they drop it. I think it comes back like one other time, but infrequent to be sure. Yeah, I watched it streaming on HBO Max. Sign up at HBO Max slash Christopher for 10% off... um, I don't know. I'm kidding. Only I don't watching have House. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You only get 10% off of watching House. And it's the Doctor Show, not this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Cutty, how was your weekend? <laughs> That's my Doctor House impression because for a long time, I forget what streaming service it was, but it was like anytime you'd boot it up, it'd be like, check out House, check out all these great stuff. And it'd be this one moment where in Doctor House walks into an elevator with the other doctor that like he hooked up with and that was his line which was <laughs> Dr. Cutty how was your weekend wow that's house in a nutshell i feel like <laughs> yeah i also loved when at the beginning of every episode they went lupus <laughs> always it's never lupus but yeah i watched it on you know i watched it streaming and there are moments where the camera is purposefully low frame rate And I was like, is something wrong with my streaming service here? Because this is giving me a headache. No. Oh, no. I guess it's ghost vision. Oh, yeah, baby. You got to have a ghost vision. I hope it's over soon. It's making me sick. (laughs) Oh, no. Is this what it's like to die? Constant slight nausea. And I don't get to see (laughs) things in full HD as I am accustomed. (laughs) Things are jumping around. Oh, yeah, gosh, no, you die, and then Death says, sorry, man, I know you were used to HD, I know you were used to a high frame rate, that comes with the body, dude, sorry. <laughs> Life is streaming, <laughs> it gets choppy. I do also love, one of the girls is like, hey, I'll take a picture of all of us, but then the cat's eyes flash green, and the camera floats from her hands and smashes on the ground. Yeah. I forgot to also mention another deleted scene was they were like, even more super cats also can have telekinesis powers. Really? Uh, on the train. <laughs> yeah, they they they, they say they this? Really, no, no. <laughs> oh, yeah, you could tell me anything happened on your, you know, Criterion laser disc that you watch it on. Uh, <laughs> 
Especially with this movie. Literally, you could say anything. <laughs> true. That's true. It's not really fair for me to be like, of course I didn't say the cat has telekinesis, <laughs> because they very well could have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kung Fu does save them after the chandelier drops some of these uh, diamond-like bombs, which I did think, you know, oh, more like nuclear imagery. Ooh, there. yes. Although a poor lizard is not so lucky. It, it does get stabbed by the uh, chandelier. We also get this great grinning skeleton in the master bedroom, which is also where the piano is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love the skeleton. It's sure. Just, I mean, it dances constantly. A skeleton shows up and is like, oh, my fiance was a doctor and so was my dad. There you go. So what? We got a skeleton. <laughs> Auntie does talk about how bustling the village used to be and how girls used to come by all the time for lessons. But things have changed, which is very eerie. You realize, mm. oh, she fucking ate all of them. <laughs> yeah. A uh, huge clock chimes seemingly from nowhere. Uh, when they drop the melon in the well, Auntie is like, dang, Mac, you're so round, you look good enough to eat. But it does take on another level beyond just rude-ass family members. <laughs> 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 she also says the bright sun scares her, which, like, yeah, this vampire stuff that, like, sometimes gets played with and sometimes doesn't, it's like, oh, sure, okay. They don't yeah. like the sun. Auntie does go to bed while the rest of them eat. Mac disappears when she goes for the melon, though. And Fantasy goes looking for her and says, wow, she didn't even get to it yet as she starts pulling up the melon. But instead, it's Mac's head, calls her name and then bites her ass, says tasty and falls back in the well after puking up a bunch of bloody water. Just a delight. Yeah, and then that's it. Mac is just another ghost among the many in the house at that point. She she got to do her one scare <laughs> and then she was absorbed into, into the collective. Right, exactly. And Fantasy collapses in front of the girls who ask what happened. She also makes a reference to the Momotomo A movie that paired with this when they say, oh, hearts in mud. Oh, really? Oh, man, I did not catch that. That's great. It's fun. Really fun. Mm. It's funny to imagine being like, oh, yeah, this is going to (laughs) kill. Oh, no. When this movie comes out, everyone hates it. It It won't be appreciated for a long time. (laughs) In 50 years, though, they're going to be like, wow, great reference. (laughs) Auntie does come to see what's the matter, and she's healed enough not only to get out of bed, but to get also out of the wheelchair. And she says, oh, you gave me energy. Yeah, because she's eating them kids. That's right. They go to check and see the melon is back attached. Fantasy living up to her name, they assume. Even as she sees Auntie doing a cheeky little glimpse of her eating an eye from the Oh, head. so great. I love it. I love how quickly the movie like drops the pretense of being like, so you, you all know the house is fucked up and the aunt is the problem, right? Great. Okay, she's going to pop an eyeball out of her mouth to fuck with you. <laughs> I love that they just cut to the chase real quick. Yeah. Oh, it's super fun, too. She's really like teasing them, having fun with it. Mm-hmm. Now, they can't find Mac anywhere. They're washing the dishes and the water turns to blood. No reaction from the girl who takes a giant gulp of it. Yeah, man. Love that. I love every time they don't react. I think it's. I think it, it shows how deep and doomed they are in it, you know? Yeah, and speaking of how doomed they are, you know, Auntie, this is where she's having this time of her life. She's dancing and telling stories and saying, don't worry, you'll see Mac, with the subtext being, because I'm going to eat you all. Yeah, yeah. It's more text than subtext, really, but <laughs> Fantasy sees Auntie go through the fridge, and she comes out in the foreground on the rafters. I love this. She does this magic. She dances with the skeleton and, like, eats Mac's hand and half a goldfish. The cat starts singing along with the music that's playing. Wonderful. Yeah. Gosh. 
Yeah, like like imagine Exorcist, where like at <laughs> what was it? Uh, Paimon. Uh, who's the demon? Yeah, Paimon. Yeah, Paimon. Like like when Paimon is or no really, Pazuzu. Pazuzu. A Pazuzu. Paimon, Paimon is, is from hereditary. Hereditary. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, I'm mixing up my pee demons. God, I'm gonna get slaughtered in the comments for. That. <laughs> All right. Well, imagine when other name for Satan. <laughs> Is like really messing with the priest and like just decides to like have like a little musical number like celebrating how <laughs> how much they're winning. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's like yeah. he made Captain Howdy sing a little song. With it. Like, let me tell you something about your mother. <laughs> she sucks something in hell. Can you tell me what she sucks in hell? Can you tell me what she sucks in hell? Hey. <laughs> the both priests are like they're the the chorus. They're crying <laughs> while they're clapping. They can't help it. <laughs> It's too catchy. <laughs> Gorgeous does her makeup in Auntie's mirror while Melody starts playing the piano. And I haven't looked into this. It's possible it is uh, explicitly an homage. But I'm starting a conspiracy theory that the opening of Welcome to the Black Parade is like mimicking this piano. Because it sounds oh. so much like it. And it also, I mean... I don't listen to a ton of My Chemical Romance. I certainly haven't in a very long time. But based on what I know about Gerard Way, this yeah. feels like the kind of thing that he would be I, into. It seems like he's seen the movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm starting that conspiracy theory. If you agree, sign up for the newsletter <laughs> out there. Yeah, great. I'm in. <laughs> the Skeleton Man is grooving behind her. And I love we get this beautiful shot of the house from outside. It's like kind of a, a nice moment to pause and say all right let's reset before we really get into the house popping off gorgeous is possessed obviously that's what happens when you do your makeup in in your demon ants mirror yeah yeah again plays to her weakness her vanity mm. Mm, sure does i love these great changing images too and then the shattering glass and crying blood and then she reflects the mirror and cracks herself becoming a silhouette of flames it's it's incredible i hate I hate when that happens. I mean, you have to go back with the makeup for sure, but it's it's part of, <laughs> it's part of growing up. It's such a cool image, but it's also like one of those things where like, I was like, is she dead? <laughs> is that how she, because again, I was, I was saying like, I was surprised that like, I, I thought she was going to survive and escape the house. I really did yeah. up until that moment when I was like, oh, well, it's, it felt weird that like, I'm like, she's just another victim. And then when it became clear that it's like, Again, it's that dream logic where it's like she kind of combines with the ant mm-hmm. until the end when it seems like stabbing the right picture in the house kills off the ant. Right. And then it's just like she sort of takes up the avatar of the haunted house later on. Yep. Yeah. Melody's music becomes unhinged as we check in with the rest of them and they all rush to the music room <laughs> as she starts to scream. Yeah, she's playing Obla D Obla Da. <laughs> <laughs> The most unhinged piano song you can imagine. <laughs> the cat starts singing along with her again. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet is also having troubles of her own. She does get attacked by mattresses and pillows. Okay, yeah, so so Sweet's death uh, sucked. The comfiest. <laughs> that is the worst death. And I appreciate that, like... It's based on, like, a real nightmare, but, like, basically she gets buried in mattresses. So, and then first, and then, I don't know why, but they're, like, you know, there's a pile of mattresses, and they're, like, oh, here's her underwear. Okay. 
And then, oh, no, actually what happened is that she got eaten by the big clock later. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, it, it seems like the impression that you're supposed to get is she turned into that doll. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. But that's not what happened. She she right. shows up in the clock and then she right. she bleeds green like she was a, a darned Vulcan from the Star Trek series. And that's not right. Wow. But again, child logic, child logic. You can't be bleeding green, sweet. It's not allowed. You're a human, not not a Vulcan. Melody says the piano bit her, but she's fine otherwise. And then I love this this like oh, misdirect yeah. where it seems like they're going to be like, or is she? And then it turns out that what's wrong with her is she has diarrhea, I guess. This captivates me, um, this moment, this, this fake out. This fake out in the middle of the movie where it's like, uh-oh, something's wrong. She's got a grumbly tummy. She goes to the outhouse outside the place and she's calling, oh. I guess, I, she, she's calling from, 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 from fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. And oh, the most imaginative one. Oh, so tormented because of her imagination. So it's like, oh, God, what is what is the now converted demon ghost version of Melody One? And then you see the hand creeping out and like calling from the outhouse, uh, you know, beckoning. And then her face peeks out. She's like, I need toilet paper. <laughs> I love this because... Th- this is also a, like this is a trope. This is a thing. I I had to look it up because I remembered it from Legend of Zelda: Majora's Mask. In that, like, you show up to the toilet in the inn at the right time, and there is a hand beckoning from the toilet, and it's just like paper, paper. <laughs> and then if you trade it any paper, it'll then give you you know an item or whatever. And then like this repeats to the Zelda series, and I'm like, where did this come from? I looked it up, and so like. Nintendo's famed uh, Miyamoto was like, oh, yeah, I remember there's a really scary story that we all knew as kids growing up where a hand would come out of a toilet. And, like, that's where we put it in. And it's like, <laughs> well, clearly there's something to this with this movie, too. And there's just, like, there are several stories of these toilet ghosts, basically. Wow. There's, like, a girl who died in the in a girl's bathroom, and you can summon her, and she'll bother you. She died from not enough toilet paper? <laughs> no, I think she's... Uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe, but like it's like it's like one of these great things where it's like there's no real definitive edges to these legends because it, it is like they're spoken and, and yeah. you know, kids will make up whatever. Sure. The oral tradition. Yeah, as I mentioned previously, the Kappa, the, the the turtle spirit monsters who like they're these water creatures, but like, oh boy, you don't want one to reach up through a toilet and try to grab your soul through your butt. Right. Like, they'll do that. And then there's, like, this this other demon who, like, the, again, this is another mix where it's, like, this guy will, like, like if you go you go to the wrong stall and you're out of toilet paper and when you're done, like, someone says, like, do you want red paper or blue paper? And if you say red toilet paper, he, he takes your blood. Whoa. Or, like, he cuts you. Like, or, no, wait. I forgot the rip. And it's bloody. Yes, for red, it's bloody. <laughs> yes, for blue paper, it drains all your blood, turns you blue. Wow. And if you think you're going to try to outsmart it and be like, green paper, idiot, it's just like, all right, I'm just going to send your soul straight to hell. Wow. Like, you don't that's even it. get the, the No, you're, you, were, you were doomed from the beginning. <laughs> 
And then also that hand, the beckoning hand is also like a Japanese mythological thing where it's like, if you're just like walking down a hallway, you may see see a ghostly hand beckoning like that. And that is like, so like that is a meaningful imagery. And the idea that they subvert it with the toilet thing Mm -hmm. is very fun when you read all these Wikipedia articles after the fact, like I did, because I didn't grow up with it. But yeah, I think it's like so interesting to be like, wait, what is this hand out of the toilet thing? What yeah. is this asking for toilet paper ghostly thing? Why is why have I seen this in like my favorite Zelda game and also <laughs> this movie? It is a lot of fun. I actually now that you say it, I remember hearing a similar fable where somebody was like, Here's the red toilet paper, here's the blue toilet paper. You take the blue toilet paper, you wake up with a poopy butt. You <gasps> take the red toilet paper, you see how far the outhouse hole goes. Oh! <laughs> Matrix references! Oh! We got it. <laughs> I know how to wipe my butt. <laughs> Show me. <laughs> the smell. <laughs> oh, there it is. <laughs> Mr. Anderson, the smell of your poopy butt. It's the stink of it. I can't stand your poopy butt. Now... They can't find Sweet, but Blanche is wrapped up with this new doll, and Sweet's clothes are all over the room, like you said, so they do imply that she's turned into this. Fantasy is starting to get worried, but Professor says, hey, Mr. Togo is coming. He'll be the Prince Charming that saves us. And this does calm down Fantasy. They come and get Gorgeous, who, since she's all possessed, this is where the camera is stuttering, you know, Mm -hmm. does that low frame rate thing. Yeah, made me sick. (laughs) Made me sick. Great movie. Made me sick. (laughs) Hey, it elicited a reaction from you. (laughs) (laughs) I also do like that she gets, like, kind of triggered by, like, a mention of flying planes, where she's like, oh, my fiance. Yeah. She says that she's going for the police, and she leaves with Blanche, but nobody else can open the doors, and they're trapped, which is fun. And the possessed gorgeous kind of, like, wanders through the fog, singing and juggling light and just generally having a good time. Yeah, she's having a great time. It's good to be a ghost. (laughs) Togo is having trouble on the way, and the girls are scared that it's getting to be a horror movie. (laughs) So Kung Fu Mm -hmm, steps mm -hmm, in. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now it's a karate movie. She tries to fight the wall. Great. That she's just like, no, it's a karate movie. It's an action movie. With the soundtrack changing, too, whenever she jumps into action. So great. I also like that prof is like, oh, it's a new device, not magic. <laughs> oh, yeah. The bizarre like, oh, like, it's like one must deduce if an old woman lives alone, then she must have a hitherto unbeknownst to us device that automatically closes the doors in her house. It only stands to reason. <laughs> they do have the brilliant idea of ask how to open the doors. <laughs> I like that a lot, too. Like, oh, wait, she's probably in bed. Can we just, like, go bother her? (laughs) And they can't find her, though they do find Mac's hand in her room. And they hear Gorgeous singing while Melody plays the piano, but she's not actually responding to anything, and the the piano itself is starting to go nuts, attacking Melody again and chewing off her fingers, like you said, uh, and then her old self while the skeleton just, like, dances in the background. He's having a good time. That skeleton dances so much, (laughs) never acknowledged. By anyone. That skeleton is always just at least vibrating in the background. Honestly, I think that this movie kind of sets an unfair standard for other movies by just having a dancing skeleton that just chills in the background. Like, all movies should have that. 
Yeah. And it's a it's a crime that they don't. I think it sets an unfair standard for other movies in that like it just does whatever it wants. I've I've said this before, but I'm just like Yeah, you know what? Like if you've ever got a problem with your movie, let's just have a piano eat someone. And oh, that doesn't Can't work. Make it worse. Yeah. Th- that doesn't work in your artistic vision. Well, guess what? It worked for house. <laughs> so no excuses. That's right. That's right. I want to see it out there. Upstairs, Gorgeous is in a wedding dress, and they find a book with a cat on it entitled Lonely Days, about how the aunt had been stealing these young girls from the village all these years to stay youthful and wait for her fiancé. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kung Fu sees Sweet trapped in the clock, and she bleeds goop and blood, and, and it's just generally gross, and they're like, oh. Yeah, it's there. a sweet moment where they're like, oh, Sweet, sorry. <laughs> sorry, that's how you went. And she's like, I know. <laughs> Bye. She like is in there for a bit and is like, oh, this sucks. Yeah. Like it's what it's what's happening. Yep. <laughs> I guess I should have gotten married. She should have known. I love that Togo is like going to town on some ramen. Just like chilling out in the He's world like, these are the there. best noodles I've ever had at this pit stop an hour away from where all of my students are getting murdered by a ghost house. <laughs> God, they're good noodles, though. He loves it. They finally acknowledge what's happening, and they're, like, starting to build this barricade, and he's just like, hmm, I hope everything is okay up there. Yeah. Gorgeous's giant-ass head pops through the wall. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. She explains that she's in her aunt's world and that the aunt died many years ago but eats all the unmarried girls because it's the only time that she can wear the wedding dress. Yeah. Great. I love that moment. Uh, Like, the last thing that she does before she's completely consumed by the spirit world. Yep. I also love this great animation of the house getting, like, giant and spooky as as it fully becomes the other world. Now it's your turn. Just let me eat you, she says. (laughs) The painting of the cat sort of, uh, like lights up and meows while the camera flies around and kung fu fights the furniture and uh and we find gorgeous in the fog there as well meanwhile togo is just straight casual in his ride over still chilling having a great time the professor realizes the professor professor realizes (laughs) that blanche is the key but when kung fu goes for the painting she's killed by a lantern Mm. this is i think one of the most grim deaths because it's not as out there as like some of the others and it takes like a while where yeah. she's just like hanging there and like struggling with it you're like oh god well she's the strongest of them and so you know it takes the most to kill her yeah i guess so and even then her legs independent of her body are able to break free and deliver the killing blow to the cat portrait that's right just like the lizard at the beginning her friggin back half keeps wiggling <laughs> oh Mm, beautiful beautiful comes full circle we love a synergy (laughs) i also do love you know this cat painting changes in this moment as it becomes fully evil and uh it becomes psychedelic kind of i just watched the that louis wayne documentary and um he was he was an english artist that made these like psychedelic cat paintings in the victorian era and i was like oh kind of Reminds me a little bit of that so i wonder if there was some influence happening you know probably could be hey I'm going to say it. There was some influence there. <laughs> there you go. The painting, though, does fall fall apart as she kicks it. And the animated cat reaction is really fantastic. I think I got it uh, on my shirt somewhere. There we go. Yes. There he is. Yeah, there he is. 
<laughs> so yeah, uh, George is wearing a gorgeous house shirt that features a sort of a collage of flowers and uh, sort of iconic imagery from the movie, including the scowling cat <laughs> and the moment when Kung Fu dies and accepts her fate amongst the dead. That's right. It's also got the fun like ending house here at the, at the bottom of my hand. And for you, the listener, there's a graphic on the sleeve that mimics the graphic at the end of the film. Imagine that. On a shirt? You better believe it. (laughs) The future really is now. The painting does fall apart, but the the cat image is still there, and it's spitting blood furiously. So much blood. (laughs) So much blood that it's flooding the house. Yeah, they're floating on, like, the wood panels and everything. (laughs) Also, Gorgeous is, like, erupting blood as well, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Finally, Mr. Togo does start to get to the edge of the of the castle here. Jaunty piano and saxophone are playing on the radio, which is fun. <laughs> Things are looking good. Yeah, and the melon guy tells him that they were eaten, and they were delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Togo says, I don't like melons, I only like bananas, and this kills the melon guy, and um, yeah, he, he turns into bananas. Also kills Togo, yeah. too. Uh, it's... Um... It's a moment that you really do have to be okay with to enjoy the entire movie. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't make sense, and you just have to be okay yeah. with that. Right. I think, look, if, if, if that's enough to undo all of the goodwill that this movie has earned up to this point, that's a whole other issue. The pile of bananas, as Mr. Togo, looks very good. It's a great visual yeah. gag. Oh, absolutely. Now, back at the house, Prof loses her glasses and gets eaten slash dissolved by a piggy bank that drags her under the blood when she reaches for them. Uh-huh. She was like, the Velma, my glasses. Yeah, yeah. Again, her intellectuality is her downfall. Mm, so true. She needs her glasses to read. If only she would give up on the idea of trying to read, she would have survived. Ah, uh, her pride. Cometh before the blood dissolving. Yeah. And she also is like a mermaid for a second, like in her death. She's like, oh, this is great. I love frolicking under the blood. It is, yeah, it is a, a weird kind of serene moment for her. <laughs> yeah. Blanche and Gorgeous are just like vibing, but she comes down and she lures fantasy into her arms and her eyes twinkle because obviously she's going to get it. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out fantasy made it to the very end, but ultimately... Gave in to her loyalty to Gorgeous in the end. And a- ignoring fantasy, which is very interesting. Like, she clearly, she must have known that her friend was, was full-on possessed and then just ignored all the signs in the end and then yeah, succumbed. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what's left for her at this point, you know? There's a, a feeling almost of her just being like, well, I'm, I now feel what the loss is like and I can't handle it and I'm walking into the maw of this cat demon yeah but you know if she wanted to she could have escaped and just gone to a different school or made new friends but sure she had a lot of life ahead of her but she decided (laughs) she decided to throw it away damn you fantasy (laughs) (laughs) the stepmother shows up this is hilarious you get the wind machine blowing her scarf straight up (laughs) a long sequence of the stepmother delivering her promise of um going to retrieve gorgeous as her first challenge as a mother I do like it. She does this little dance number as she makes her way to the house. I also liked that the song on the radio is is like crooning, like, why don't you move in as my wife? And it's like, yeah. first of all, could be related to her and the father, but also kind of the like linking between the house singing that to Gorgeous 
and like connecting them mm-hmm. intrinsically as as a, as a as a duo you know kind of applies to both i think yeah and and you mentioned a lot of flowing this is a this is a woman who always has a big fan just off camera <laughs> and a lot of a gauzy fabric to catch that wind oh yeah and something that's really fun is that whenever she meets up with gorgeous who is now fully engosted Gorgeous is also wearing some flowy material, but it never catches the wind. So you'll see the stepmom, like, everything is in the wind, and the other one isn't affected, which is it's cool. properly spooky. Yeah, I like it a lot. And Gorgeous does open the door. She welcomes her in. She says, my friends wake up when they're hungry, and her eyes flare yeah. as Blanche runs across, and the stepmother erupts in flames. Yeah, a quick death for that asshole who would dare date my dad. Dad gets off scot free. <laughs> yeah, dad, dad was smart. Yeah, he, uh, <laughs> he just said, "Well, I guess I'll never see my daughter again." <laughs> or this uh, new girlfriend. <laughs> He's off filming the new spaghetti western. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is like we said. It's sort of playing with this fable stuff. So we get a moral at the end over dreamy colors in Gorgeous's head. She says, even after the flesh perishes, one can live in the hearts of others together with the feelings one has for them. Therefore, the story of love must be told many times so that the spirits of lovers may live forever. The one thing that never perishes, the only promise, is love. Nice little wrap up there for old gorgeous. I guess, but it's also like every single time you retell this story, my friends and I will be in the forever purgatory of the (laughs) hungriest house on the planet. That's true. That's true. Hey, the sacrifice for love, I guess. I guess. <laughs> we do get like a sad song over the credits uh, that sings uh-huh. about like getting older over footage. Very of the short credits. Yeah. <laughs> and they do double down on the fable aspect by having an animated close with the house looking like a gingerbread house a la Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that the ending really works for me. It comes together in a way that is melancholy, but still very vibrant, much like the movie itself. And now, Christopher, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. Certainly. I believe that by unshackling itself from adult ideas of stories having to follow logic or justification and allowing simply the most childlike, or I should say, primal or connected to the subconscious ideas of what is terrifying to be highlighted with such garish and cartoonish and experimental effects. I feel like that this movie really connects primally to what is scary to a human being. And I think as like a little cherry on top of that Sunday, the idea that it presents it with so much humor and like lightheartedness, I think that contrast only makes it stick in the craw uh, of our terror centers even more firmly. Yeah. And that is why I believe this is the greatest horror movie ever made. Hell yeah. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because if there's one thing I learned from Weird Al all these years ago, 
it's that a successful parody also has to function as a good example of that thing. I think that this movie does a great job of feeling like a movie aimed at younger audiences, but also parodying it with an adult message and a melancholy underneath that I've sort of been talking about this whole time. You know, there is gore, there is violence, there is nudity, there is a ghost story. I think that there is a lot going on beneath the surface that does sort of fly in the face of the aesthetic of it. And the, you know, I mean, nuclear war is like as real as it gets and as serious as it gets. And for that to be sort of the juxtaposition of these vibrant psychedelic colors and and cat animations and stuff I think is something really unique and special. And I did want to kind of close with one more quote from Nobuhiko Obayashi, where he said, the power of cinema isn't in the explainable, but in the strange. And I think that that absolutely sort of sums up what is so great about this movie. It's the same thing that's fun about Speed Racer. It uses the medium to the fullest extent of its ability. It is having fun. It's throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. And to our benefit, most of it sticks. I think that they really just knock it out of the park on pretty much every level. Even the weird idiosyncratic moments just help to make it that much more unique in a way that feels like it could only have come out of a studio being like frustrated and being like, I don't fucking care anymore. <laughs> and and who knows if, if studios will ever be willing to do that again. And, oh, uh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's part of what makes this. The best horror movie ever made. Christopher, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was so much fun. Please tell the people where they can find your work, find you on social, all that jazz. Certainly. You know, like I said, I I write some comics and you can uh, find out what is up with all of that at drhastings.biz. That is uh, the link to my uh, link tree, which is, will just take you all around everything. Check out my Dungeons and Dragons podcast, Rude Tales of Magic, where I play a skeleton man who can use magic. Or, yeah. oh, these, those stars of space, which is our, our Star Trek goof show, where I play a whole bunch of different characters that parody the various Star Trek conventions. Both very fun. I already said up top that I'm a big fan of Christopher's work, so I highly encourage you all to check it all out. It's just great stuff. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That username applies pretty much everywhere, including Instagram and Letterboxd, although the new UI for Instagram is so terrible that I am probably going to leave it. So, <laughs> Oh, gosh. We're hearing it more and more. This is the last day. And if you're really enjoying the show, you can check out the Patreon for it, where there's all kinds of bonus episodes and commentaries. We just had Mike Mitchell from the Doughboys back on to talk about The Blob from 1988. Very fun movie and lots of great gore effects in there. If you're a fan of Oh, These Stars of Space and Rude Tales of Magic and all that jazz, Branson Reese did a Patreon episode where we talked about the 13 best animated horror shorts from 1929 to 1952. So (laughs) truly all over the map on terms of subject matter, things that don't necessarily fit as squarely into best horror movie ever made, but we still want to talk about, finds a place over there. So check that out and rate and review if you're enjoying the show, because it does help. All right, everyone, that's it for me. Thanks. Bye.